Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's bring in our first uh, guest. And we tried to get him on last week, and he was putting bunting. He was hanging his house in upstate New York like the World Series with all the red, white, and blue around it. Carl Weinberg um, has terrific experience in getting out of crisis. Dr. Weinberg, what will the Italians have to do? Hi, good morning, Tom. Well, you know, the Italians are going to have to convince the Europeans that protecting depositors at Italian banks is uh, just as important as protecting the euro uh, zone's uh, rules on uh, public, putting public money into supporting banks' capital. And this has been uh, a challenge uh, for the European banks, for all governments to wrap their heads around. The Europeans have adopted a view that says that investors in banks ought to bear the brunt of a problem. But if the investors aren't forthcoming with the capital to bail a bank out, and the bank needs to serve the public, then the, the state has to step in, and that's the, the procedure, that, that's the process they're working through right now in trying to resolve Italian banks. Right, but Carl, the problem is that Italy's banks are frail, right? And what people are concerned about is run on the banks. We're not there yet. Right. Well, the banks are frail. There's no doubt about that. Non-performing loans are high. The Bank of Italy would probably want to insist that there's plenty of collateral to ensure that the capital of the banking system is intact. But, of course, the Italian court system is very low in resolving bankruptcies, and that means that that collateral is not available. And the newly empowered regulator at the ECB is anxious to show that it's on the job. So we've got a lot of different byplays going on in the background here. But you're right, Francine. The banks are weak. They do need a capital injection. The public not providing that capital. The state really does have to step in or else the public's going to be harmed. All right, but Carl, so the Commission, the European Commission, and at the end of the day, Angela Merkel and the ECB have a huge problem on their hands, right? Because what you're saying is that state support is difficult to give to the Italian banks with the current bail-in rules. But because of Brexit, doesn't it not make it more likely that Europe will be more flexible with Italy? This could be bigger than Brexit, and they don't want a second problem. Well, this could actually be a good outcome come from Brexit, you know, if Brexit forces them to recognize that their bail-in rules are myopic and that they, that, that they look at only a small number of the problems associated with uh, a problem of a bank failure, then probably this is a good thing. Uh, I don't know if Brexit is specifically the cause of it. I think yeah. the real root cause of it is just that the Italian banks are so big that we can't really okay. allow them to fail easily. This is a really important conversation, folks. You go, okay, why do I care about the Italian banks? And the number one reason is we've never been here before with a major country. Carl Weinberg, state for our audience why this isn't Greece. We got Greece fatigue, but Italy's not Greece, is it? Italy's not Greece, Tom. Italy has uh, the resources, you know, to pay off its debts. And while its debts are very, very large, uh, almost as large as Greece's as a share of their GDP, the Italians have a much more viable economy, a much more greater capacity to save more and to pay down their debts and to service their obligations to the rest of Europe and to themselves. They also have the capacity to support their own banking system. And right now it's the regulations that are the rules of the union that are standing in the way of them doing so. And and uh, I yeah. suspect that they're going to have to bend but, them. Francine, I want to interrupt and just look at pound sterling. I mean, folks, I'm going to put this chart out on Bloomberg uh, Radio Plus right now. But Francine, down we go to a 131.21 low. Make that 131.15. We come up on 
Carney. And we've rolled over a third of the way already just as he stopped his press conference. That's remarkable. Sorry to interrupt, Francine. No, Tom, you know, I want to push back a little bit against what Carl was saying, is that Italy is not Greece. No, it's actually a lot bigger. Sure, they can deal with the problems. But if there's something, you know, if there's a real worry with the Italian banks, it's going to be so much bigger than anything with Brexit. With Brexit. Well, I agree with that, Francine. But I think that, you know, for invest something for investors to contemplate is specifically because the banks are so much bigger as a part of Europe that they cannot possibly be allowed to fail. And this is now we're getting to a Lehman's moment kind of conversation. But uh, I think that the lesson was learned that the institutional stability has to be viewed as well as systemic stability when you think about these things. So I doubt that the Europeans are going to allow the big Italian banks to fail in any uncontrolled way. And I I suspect that investors might want to take a think about that because they, you know, with the shares being priced as low as they are. Carl, overall, do we need to, to see some defaults or you know, do, do some banks need to go? I know Tom's been trying to figure out whether um, we, we need to merge them. I mean, at the end of the day, we need to, to, to give maybe investors a clear, clear view that they won't take any losses. Yeah, well, I think investors are probably going to take some. Uh, investors already have taken some losses. The question is whether they haven't already priced in the losses that are yet to come, and uh, this remains to be seen. I think that at the end of the day that uh, the Europeans are going to step up and allow the government of Italy to recapitalize the banking system. And then we have a situation not unlike what we had in the United States in 2008, where we had you know, a de facto nationalization. That worked out okay, you know, and uh, I don't understand why that model isn't more compelling yeah, to European I, regulators. I, mean, I, mean, I, go, I love this conversation. Let me go to both of you. Francine, I'm going to start with you. I think this is critical. Is this nothing more than protecting the elites of, in this case, Italy, or for that matter, any other European country? Or is it an actual workout like what we saw in the United States? I mean, Francine, from where you sit with all of your heritage, is this nothing more than an elite bailout in Italy? So I think Italy is a little bit different. It's a, it's a lot like Greece, where you have a lot of bondholders that are actually, you know, mom and pop bank. I remember my, my grandmother, uh, Tom, would give me some, some Italian bonds for Christmas. Now, this is kind of the cultural thing that people used to do a lot like in Greece. So if you do start, you know, enforcing these bail-in rules, then actually it's the households and the normal person on the street that suffers. Okay, Carl, but is this an elite bank? Uh, I mean, are they trying? It's almost like Silicon Valley. Are they trying to do it in Italy to protect the elites instead of just doing an immediate bank bailout. You know, Tom, this is one of the decisions that governments take for us on the basis of our social values, and it's hard to judge. You know, what are banks? Okay, is their job to make money for their shareholders, or is their job to serve the public? If their job is to serve the public, then the public has an interest in keeping them going. If their job is only to make money for shareholders, then shareholders should lose money when the banks lose money, and the government has to decide where it stands on these issues. Francine Lacroix in London. I'm Tom Keene in New York. Burning it up with Carl Weinberg. you're talking Italy. Carl, I want to bring it over to Britain. You were the first one to give us a clinic on the current account balance, goods, services, and money flows. Governor Carney was asked about this. Why is the current account balance Governor Carney's worst nightmare? Well, you know, the current account has to be financed. And in order to finance it, uh, you have to have an attractive value proposition on the other end. When I say financing it, I 
don't mean just trade. And I have to say that the cheaper pound is going to make trade substantially better. I'm just looking at my London Shirtmakers summer sale catalog, and uh, the shirts not exactly free, but they're a good bit cheaper than they were a year ago at this time, given the exchange rate. We're going to see some improvement on trade as a result of the cheaper pound. But bringing capital into the UK, people who bring money in to build buildings, people who bring money in to buy homes, people who build money in to buy companies or to invest in companies, people who bring money in to be managed in sterling by British banks. This has all become, uh, there have been big capital losses already on the pound, and they have to attract a lot more money in each quarter as their current account deficit gets wider. If they can't do that, sterling will depreciate even further, and I think that's what we're seeing right now. Carl, I'm so happy your tweet is that much cheaper. Uh, yesterday, we heard from Standard Life Investments they suspended their trading yeah, on their fund, right? Uh, because they are seeing an increase in redemption requests. Are we going to see Brexit getting much, much uglier? Last Friday, uh, well, 10 days ago after Brexit, it was ugly. And then markets resumed their onwards drift. Have we seen the worst of it? Well, you know, this is a test of the uh, stay versus the leave hypothesis. You know, the leave people said that it wouldn't happen, that we'd have a quick panic and then we'd be over it quickly. Uh, whether 10 days is enough to be over it or not remains to be seen, or whether this is going to turn into a longer road as the state people had suggested it would. I mean, I'm open to the idea it could go either way, uh, and I'm just going to wait and see. For the moment, it certainly doesn't seem to have stabilized yet. Right. Sterling keeps on getting cheaper. Dr. Weinberg, you teach at New York University with a guy named Mervyn King <laughs> from, from London as well. He was just on our show. I thought the interview was special spellbinding, and he spoke of the alchemy around his wonderful book. What's the alchemy the British elite are going to need? You know, Mervyn and I had a conversation on the subway about a year ago, and we talked about uh, fiscal deficit reduction versus external deficit reduction. He said, hmm, he says, this government, they have a great uh, fiscal deficit reduction plan, but they have no plan whatsoever for external deficit reduction. And I think that uh, Mervyn is very much aware of the problems on the current account and the problems that that causes for financing Britain's uh, pound and for keeping the value of sterling in there. So, Francine, does that mean if I take the New York subway, I can run into... (laughs) Central bank heads, <laughs> something like that. Francine, please. Um, we're seeing so much nervousness on the sterling markets. Is it going to get worse? We're trying again. I'm trying to get a sense of who the adult in the room is, right? Tom and I were listening to Mark Carney. He's the only one that's keeping it together. Unless we have a political, um, you know, stronghold here in the UK that actually means business, is, is it going to drift off? Well, I think Governor Carney's doing a great job communicating with people and trying to present a voice of calm and reason. I think his conversation with everyone this morning, his third one since this crisis, has certainly been what the city needs to kind of give it to take a deep breath that, you know, that there is an adult in the room. But at the end of the day, you know, everyone turns to the Bank of England to calm this down. You look at what he gave us today, and he really gave us nothing that we didn't already expect before. You know, he (laughs) identified the problems. This is what we've done already. These are the contingency facilities facilities in place. And the action he gave us is one that was widely telegraphed ahead of time, and it wasn't going to take effect till next March. Anyhow, it's not a net material change in condition. So there's only so much that can be done to calm the markets. The markets have to calm themselves, and I don't know what it takes to do that, but I do give Governor Carney a lot of credit for doing what has to be done to try to make that happen sooner. What do you need? I mean, I guess Mario Draghi is so beleaguered, it's just a cheap question. What do you need from Angela Merkel? I mean, to, to wrap up this entire conversation, Carl, is the idea once more of Germany to the rescue. 
What does Chancellor Merkel have to do? Well, Chancellor Merkel is the one who's sitting on a fiscal surplus. She's got the money to spend. All right, and our fiscal surpluses there made to, you know, just, you know, collect the savings and to, you know, to improve the savings, or are they there to be used to stimulate the economy when it needs it? We saw Euroland retail sales this morning, and the one-month figure was up quite a bit, but the three-month figure is dead flat. The second quarter looks like it's going to be flat, and uh, the economy is slowing overall. We need fiscal stimulus, and I think Germany can step up to the plate and provide some of that if it wants to. You know, if it feels that, you know, that, it, that Europe's interests are more important than Germany's interests. And at the end of the day, that's the whole question. You know, are they Germans right. or are they Europeans? Carl, terrific briefing. Thank you so much. Carl Weinberg. Gold was thirteen fifty now. Yeah, thirteen fifty an ounce, up eleven dollars. James Steele has been way out front with HSBC on getting the gold call right, uh, looking at eleven hundred ish, even south of there for higher gold prices. He joins us for an update right now. James Steele, is your world linked? Is your gold world linked to Brexit? Very much so, uh, at least for the moment. Um, gold is uh, a sensitive barometer of a geopolitical risk, uh, a financial and economic market risk. And uh, Brexit, of course, is the particular event in the last uh, few weeks that, that has grabbed the financial markets event. And, and, and as such, uh, it has impacted uh, gold quite notably, giving it, giving it a substantial boost. James, how much more can gold rise on the back of Brexit? Well, there's a number of factors, I think, that are going to create some headwinds. Uh, uh, we issued a report today um, that uh, confirmed uh, the high for the year of likely to be around 1,400. And uh, the reason for that is that uh, Brexit, of course, is in the news now. Uh, the currency markets have reacted. Uh, we still think there's some more bang um, as, as geopolitical risk uh, continues to, to, to evolve and the currency markets remain volatile. But the market has had some time to react to it. And, uh, and we have seen a physical demand uh, uh, diminish as a result of, of high prices. Which is what, I mean, the target, James, I know it's difficult to give targets, right? But, but given that, um, unlike some of the other proxies, such as Swissy and Yen, gold is not subject to intervention risk, what's the end game here? Well, that, that, that is the key thing that, that is in gold's uh, uh, favor. Um, if you're going to move into a safe haven asset, say like the, uh, the Swissy or, or the yen, you, you do have, and I'm not saying they will intervene uh, personally, but there is always the threat of, uh, of, of currency intervention. Uh, now, that does not exist with gold. There is no central bank. Um, so as a consequence, uh, gold's upside uh, is, not, uh, is not limited in that sense. Uh, but it does have to obey other market fundamentals, uh, uh, including demand and supply, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And that's <clears throat> where we think the, the, the opposition will come from. James, Francine was looking this weekend at the two butterfly earrings, Van Cleef and Arpels, $13,600. I just, I just know she was just looking at those this weekend. You say that the price of gold actually affects Francine's demand for the two butterfly earrings, $13,600. Is that true? Well, firstly, I'm sure Francine deserves much more than a paltry $13,000 piece of jewelry. Um, uh, but there is a difference between uh, Western jewelry uh, and, and emerging market jewelry. And uh, in, in the West, particularly in a place like New York or Paris, 
Tokyo, London, um, you're paying substantially more than the price of gold because you're paying for labor, overhead, et cetera, et cetera. In a place like India particularly, uh, but also China, Southeast Asia, uh, the, the, the cost of the jewelry item, particularly outside of the major cities, is much closer to the actual price of gold. The markup is relatively low. Uh, the labor that goes into the uh, uh, jewelry right. item uh, is modest. <clears throat> and therefore, and that's where you get the yeah. price sensitivity. The sensitivity rests in the East. And, uh, you know, between mm-hmm. China and India, that's about two-thirds of all of the physical jewelry that's well, bought. James, is gold a currency? Can it ever be a currency? Well, um, it has survived for a very long time with... Uh, uh, definition. Um, one of the ways that one could argue that gold is a currency uh, is that it's counted as part of central bank uh, foreign exchange reserves. Uh, really? I did only, not know that. Yes, it is part of uh, the, uh, the foreign exchange reserves of any central bank has uh, uh, a number of uh, currencies, of course, that it adds, uh, plus, it, plus the value of its gold. So that, that, that would be an argument, that, that gold is a currency. Also, gold can be used to settle debts between nations and meet uh, current account uh, deficits, which, which we saw, for example, with uh, Korea back in the uh, Asian crisis of the 1990s. Uh, gold was used to uh, uh, shore up the yuan in that case. They, they used it to, they sold uh, domestic gold supplies and they, uh, they used it to stabilize their currency. I mean, it's a great image. The United States Department of Treasury Bullion Depository at Fort Knox. Have you ever been there, James? I have not. No, I have never been to Fort Knox. I have never seen the, uh, the gold that, that it, we have there. Is it like a room with gold? I mean, is it like uh, James Bond? I believe I believe it's a vault, uh, but I, of course, uh, it is it is off limits to such lowly personages as me. You know, Tom. One of the when you look at gold, um, Gordon Brown at the time where he was finance minister, chancellor of the exchequer, sold most of Britain's golds, and I guess um, there have been more and more calls for him to actually explain why he sold all of that gold, given it's risen so much. I, I, yes, indeed. And that, 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 that was uh, a signal, I believe, at the time. I remember uh, there, there was some jocularity going around the markets that if the Bank of England was selling gold, then that, in fact, meant that uh, the market had bottomed. But in fact, that was the case. The market bottomed around 255 uh, on, on the UK sales. You know, there were very heavy sales. Uh, not just the UK, but there were sales uh, from central bank uh, reserves from 1991 right through to uh, just a few years ago, just to around 2007, with the peak of the sales in the 90s. And uh, it was all from Western, uh, almost all from Western central banks. And most of it was in reaction to the end of the Cold War, uh, because uh, many, many countries had built up their foreign exchange reserves uh, in case of conflict. And when the Cold War was declared an end, uh, a number of central banks decided that they were overladen with gold, and they sold. Uh, they sold a portion of their holdings. Uh, the last to do it was, the, or one of the last, was the Bank of England. Yeah. Uh, but that has not been the case recently. James, do you see gold as probably the, the biggest bubble? I know that there's a lot of positives around it because it's a haven, because the longer a U.S. rate hike is delayed, that's better for gold. Also, neutral funds rates is gold positive. But overall, if you have so many people piling into it, is it a, a bigger bubble than yields? Well, you have to be careful because it is a market after all, and it is suspect to uh, the vagaries and fluctuations of all, of, of all
all markets. Uh, gold, gold is not uh, uh, excluded from that. Uh, we do have net, record net long uh, positions uh, on the COMEX right now of over 32 million ounces. That, 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 that's very big. That's very, very high. Uh, we also have a rapid buildup in gold ETFs. So uh, those two things would warn you. I'm not saying that they can't go higher, but it does show that, uh, that there, there's been a lot right. of investment in the market in, in a fairly short time. Are the bars of gold that is in all these places, are they so heavy that no one can walk off with them? I mean, I've got a photograph here, folks, of the Bank of England's gold stored underground London, et cetera. So the Daily Mail did a wonderful uh, article on this four years ago, which Francine and I put out. But is that bar of gold so big no human could pick it up? No, uh, it's not that big, but it's uh, it's not transported easily, yeah. and it's not uh, it's not thrown about easily at all. So when one yeah. sees films of uh, of bank robbers uh, tossing around bars of gold and loading them into getaway vans, that's uh, uh, that that could not be done exactly. easily or quickly. That's the movies. Tell me about the ETFs right now. Your recent research note says they've come to life. What do you mean by that? Well, the ETFs absorbed a considerable amount of gold, and by the since since their inception, and by the end of uh, 2012, they they had the equivalent of about 95 percent of the world's um, uh, of one year of world mine production, and uh, and they began uh, liquidating in 2013 uh, around about uh, April. We saw very heavy April and June of that year. We saw very heavy liquidation, uh, based on ideas that uh, tapering was coming uh, to an end and that uh, Fed policies were changing. Uh, we continue to see sales uh, in 14 and 15, uh, but, uh, but we have seen a, a noted recovery uh, this year. And I think that's gone in tandem uh, uh, with uh, the dollar not being as strong as it was a few, a few years ago, and also ideas that the Fed of, uh, will not be increasing interest rates uh, uh, rapidly or by a number of uh, uh, counts. So uh, in a sense, the ETF market has had to and the gold market in general has had to recalibrate. Much of the liquidation we've seen uh, for the three, two and a half, three years previous to 2016 uh, had, had to be bought back uh, because ideas of Fed policy had changed. Right, James, when you look at the, the Fed policy, right, you also argue, and, and this seems very intuitive, that a flattening U.S. yield curve means that there's um, you know, further to go in, uh, of course, the, the price of gold. Yes, and in addition to that, uh, you know, the gold is principally influenced by U.S. monetary policy, but it's also influenced by uh, monetary policy outside of the U.S. And it was the introduction of negative rates at the end of last year. You know, if you look at when uh, negative rates uh, really took off full steam uh, in December of last year, uh, within a couple of weeks, that actually coincided with the low of the gold move, which was $1,054 an ounce. And ever since then, uh, the gold market it has been it might be a bumpy ride up but it has been pretty pretty much straight up as mm -hmm. we've had more and more bonds uh, issued with a negative yield james Steele, thank you so much with hsbc great uh, briefing there and update francine and i wanted to bring in michael hartnett he is chief investment strategist of the global product of Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, but that barely describes his ownership of charts with very long X axes. 
There was a professor, Angus Madison, the late Angus Madison years ago, who went back to middle evil t- medieval times. Michael Hartnett is, I believe, rumored to have charts that go back to King's Landing and Game of Thrones. I mean, they go back uh, that far. And Michael Hartnett joins us right now. Michael, you have a chart that goes back to 1790 of U.S. yields. What to you with that chart is the significance of new low yields right now? Good morning, Tom. Um, yeah, I mean, I was asked a question, I remember last November uh, in Paris by a very, very famous investor. It was a rhetorical question, but the question basically was, why do you think interest rates are as low as they are? And, and he answered the question before I could answer, but he answered by basically saying, because they're not working. And, and that's the answer to your question. Interest rates are as low as they are today because they're actually not working to stimulate economic activity. Uh, The reason they're also low is obviously the central banks are using uh, the fixed income markets to try and stimulate activity. Uh, The problem we've had is that this shift into negative interest rates, particularly in Europe and Japan, has actually done the opposite of what they wanted it to do. It's really killed uh, animal spirits rather than revived them. I look, Michael, at where we are right now, and literally as we speak, sterling works to new weakness how coordinated how correlated are markets right now oh extremely um and you know they can be correlated on the upside as well as the downside i think you're watching the right thing um i think sterling really is the eye of the storm right here and you know until sterling stabilizes holds the 130 level or you know, thereafter can stabilize somewhere between 125 and 130. Investors are going to remain extremely sort of risk off in terms of their mood. Uh, The cash will only come back into the markets when you see uh, sterling stabilize. What markets, you know, investors also need to see see is credit markets stable. But even that will really give you a trade upwards rather than an investment upwards. The investment upwards really requires coordinated fiscal policy stimulus, which, uh, you know, is is obviously quite wanting at the moment. Michael, how much more of an adjustment are you expecting from a lot of these markets? Mark Carney, uh, talking a little bit earlier, was saying, well, this is an adjustment uh, that was warranted, that was telegraphed. Is it going to go Mm. even further? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that 125, 130 is the sort of area that, that I would start nibbling, uh, certainly at UK assets. So it's got a little bit more further to go. I think that, you know, what the central banks did incredibly well last week was, was uh, you know, keep the corporate bond markets uh, doing well. If you look at H0A0 on Bloomberg or C0A0 on Bloomberg, these are the high yield and investment grade uh, Merrill Lynch indices. They're both at all-time highs. So what you didn't see was the contagion across financial markets from Brexit, um, and that was very, very welcome and what was one of the big reasons that you saw you know, markets rally uh, last week. But that has to continue. Um, obviously, the Italian bank situation is, is probably the most fluid uh, and most important at this particular moment. But I think it's when you start to see things like sterling stabilize that, that investors will be uh, you know, tempted to come back in and, and certainly tra- you know, look for a trade upside. But you know, that's certainly not the case today. Right. But Michael, how much does this have to do with what Mark Carney has done, right? It seems that the central bank's post-Brexit plan has worked, but then he's basically saying he can't fully offset the volatility triggered by Brexit. True. I think the volatility, though, has been sort of, sort of held down and, and held down well by central banks at the end of the day um you know what markets need to go you know higher is 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 profits um you know markets very simplistically really are about two things one is interest rates and the other is corporate profits well the interest rate card has been played 
as aggressively as it could. So really, you know, for markets to go up and stay up, um, you need to have confidence that corporate profits are getting better. And I think that monetary policy, unfortunately, right now, is failing to do that. And that's why, you know, in response to the first question, interest rates are at the levels that they are. So I think it's going to be, need more than, you know, just Mark Khan in the central banks at this particular moment. You're going to need a little bit of political stability and belief that the politicians right. can coordinate a fiscal response. Michael, I love, love, love your reports. Wall Street boom, Main Street bust. We know what that chart looks like. We're living it. Long robots, short humans. And then you've got a killer chart on the collapse of our commodity business. The rolling returns from commodities is back 8-0, folks. Eight decades, 80 years lows, blows through post-World War II, blows through the Eisenhower Depression, and we're back to the 1930s. Do you, what will that mean for China to see a rolling return from commodities back to the 30s? Well, obviously, it can be very good for China. If China wants to buy commodities, it's able to buy them at very cheap you know, levels. But, of course, there's a chicken and egg aspect to this because the weakness of the Chinese economy and the, you know, the shift that structurally it's making away from investment to consumption is obviously one of the reasons uh, among many that you know, the commodity prices are as low as they are. Um, the other big reason is, is, of course, technological disruption, and that's why long robots, short humans, um, you know, is a big feature of our landscape today. It's something that's causing uh, wage uncertainty. Uh, it, it's got this whole sort of inequality thing attached to it, and it's why the policies that politicians will pursue going forward um, are going to have a big, big impact on markets. You know, if they pursue the war on inequality, so to speak, via you know taxation, that's probably going to be good for bonds. If it's via higher minimum wages, that's also going to be good for bonds. What we need to see, uh, as I said before, is a much more coordinated fiscal response. That's the thing that's much more likely to get uh, risk out. You know, longer term, you have to get uh, animal spirits, both of individuals, corporations and, and investors moving again. Uh, Michael, are you worried about UK banks? It seems that, uh, again, Mark Carney has, uh, you know, stepped in to ensure the stability continues. Yes, I mean, I think that the, you know, the Italian bank situation is the one that you know, investors, um, certainly the macro community, are, are watching most closely today. So I think that some resolution is, is required there. I think more broadly for the UK, I'd be, um, you know, less worried about the banking system. I don't think that that means that the banks are necessarily a raging buy, because for that to occur, you need confidence that economic growth is going to go up, uh, housing activity is going to go up, uh, and you need to see interest rates go up. Those are the things that will make bank stocks go up. But nonetheless, the uh, shock, I think, to the UK economy just in coming quarters is much more likely to be via trade uh, than uh, uh, credits, I think. Michael Hartnett, you've got a great idea of comparing U.S. stocks to European stocks, and we're 472 standard deviations in the rich U.S. cheap Europe. When does an experienced guy like you go long Europe, short America? Well, when I want to go long banks and short technology, um, because they're very different indices, and obviously there are a number of reasons why, you know, as, as you rightly put it, the U.S. stock market is extraordinarily rich versus the European one. But one of the big ones is that, that, that in the European market, you have a tremendous amount of financials, and those financials obviously aren't doing very well. In Italy and Spain, for example, those two markets, the financials are, you know, roughly a third to 40% of the index, which is, which is remarkable, really, if you think about it. Who knew the Italians and the Spanish were so good at uh, banking? But that, 
level of uh, financials within the market is is a real dead weight, and until unless those banks start to do you know a lot better, and they can only do a lot better when the economy does better, the U.S. market, by contrast, is very very heavy with technology. So, you know, the value growth, you know, if if people want growth rather than value, then the U.S. market is going to outperform, and that's exactly what's happening, you know, right now. So you need a turnaround in the European banks, and you need people to believe in economic recovery and interest rates going up. Um, Michael, is it to the end Italian banks, could they be a bigger threat to the Eurozone stability than Brexit? You know, at the end of the day, they've been a threat for, for some time. You know, what the markets have been waiting for is some sort of resolution in terms of recapitalization, probably some creative destruction within the sector that would allow people to believe that, uh, you know, those banks, which are terrifically important to funding, you know, the European economy, can actually fund the European economy and actually get the economy moving again. So I think Brexit, you, you know, clearly thus far, the financial market stress uh, component of it was, you know, has, it, it's been relatively well behaved. I mean, Tom mentioned the Standard Life News this morning, which obviously is in, in, important in that regard. But I think uh, the markets have been relatively well behaved po- post-Brexit. But obviously, another breakdown in terms of the banking system in, in Europe, uh, a run on the banks would be a very, very bad thing, particularly at this stage in the macro. I look at the back and forth. And what we all know from experience is there's exogenous shocks out there. I'm, to be blunt, folks, and I've said this for weeks, focused on Italian banks and the spillover into Eastern Europe. What is Michael Hartnett thinking about is the exogenous shock that gets your attention? Well, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, just to back up on to, to Francine's point, because just to, to finish off there, the, the one thing to watch, Francine, is, is for rates to go up. You know, thus far, if you think about the bank stocks in Europe and pretty much everywhere else, when the bank stocks go down, rates go down. That's a deflation trade. When the bank stocks go down and interest rates are going up, that's a default trade. And, and that's when it turns very pernicious. You haven't got to that stage yet. In terms of, you know, your question, Tom, in terms of what are the exogenous shocks? I mean, look, I mean, I suppose it's like asking what is the black swan, you know, out there. I, I think that, you know, the bulls would say that, the, you know, the black swan is there, a, there is no black swan, that, that, that we're all way too, you know, paranoid. You know, we, we, our cash levels are just ridiculously high, that, that actually the economy, I mean, it ain't going to do great, but it's going to do okay. Uh, and you're going to see some signs, and I think the signs, the area to look for is, is the housing market, some signs that interest rates are having an impact. Mm-hmm. The, the bear would say the black swan, you know, event is, is what I just, you know, described, is, is that right now you have a total and utter capitulation into the view that every single interest rate in the world will fall to zero. Yeah. So people are piling into government bonds, yeah. investment grade, high quality stocks. If rates suddenly go up for the wrong reasons, right. you know, that's bad. Michael, our fondest hope is we get you on set in London with Ethan Harris at some point. That would be a great, great uh, moment. Michael Hartnett with Bank of America, Merrill Lynch with terrific reports. most important interview of the day. We've been trying to do this for weeks, and we can't because, Francine, Luigi Zingales is smarter than you or I. He's at the Booth School, Chicago, his wonderful book, Saving Capitalism. He's been on before to explain Italian soccer to us. But the real issue, Francine, and please, folks, Francine's going to help here. He's calling us from Friuli, 
which is in the tippy-tippy northeastern Austrian part of Italy. Francine, American idiots like me think of Italy as Rome, maybe Milan, and we know Patton did something in World War II down in the south. That's our total knowledge. This is close to Venice. It's close, but it's like the it's a glorious part of Italy, right, Francine? Right. So it's you know almost Germany. It's all it's it's like it's a part of Italy, folks, that we never think about. And Professor Zingales joins us today from Friuli. Luigi, why do you go to Friuli? What is in Friuli in the summer? Friuli is cooler than the rest of Italy, as one of the best wines is uh, as organized in Austria and is as beautiful as Italy. There we go. There's the explanation. I need to know why I'm going to be going to Friuli. Luigi, we are honored to have you on today. Do you just, My pleasure. Do you just assume the government will bail out the Italian banks? Uh, I think that uh, probably they will. It's a very tricky situation. As you know, I'm not a big fan of government bailouts, but uh, in Italy the situation is particularly bad because uh, banks have sold a lot of their bonds and subordinated bonds to retail investors. In particular, Montepaschi has 5 billion euros of subordinated uh, debt in the hands of uh, retail investors that uh, sold them as uh, substitute deposits, and uh, and so if you were to default on those, this will easily create uh, a bank panic in Italy. So I think that uh, the situation is, is really, really, really tense. Luigi, first of all, when you talk about a bank panic, this is a run on the banks. I mean, at the moment, what are the chances of that happening? Is it more like 30% or are we 60% there? Uh, it's very difficult to tell. I think that uh, already in January we had uh, a very difficult moment because, as you probably have heard, in November, uh, two, actually four regional banks basically were restructured, and for the first time, subordinated debt uh, was uh, wiped out. And uh, an investor committed suicide. Uh, there were a lot of uh, people uh, severely distraught, and in particular in, in my region, which is Veneto, where there are two banks in serious difficulties, people started to withdraw money from their banks. And uh, they found a temporary solution, so there were two capital increases in two uh, in Veneto banks that sort of tranquilized the situation for a little while. It's, it's very hard to know. I know the situation is very tense. Uh, I know that the government is afraid of uh, letting any bank default even on the subordinated debt because this could be sort of uh, the end of this government. And, uh, and I know that uh, if there are generalized losses, uh, people will start withdrawing their money and, and bring it to German right. banks. So, but Luigi, uh, what's, the solution? what's the solution, right? You, I mean, it's very clear that state support, which we're probably looking at, does not sit with the current bank bail-in rules imposed by the EU. Will this change? Actually, um, you know, in Italy, we have this expression that whenever you, find, uh, you create a rule, you find a way around it. And uh, there are ways around it. In particular, uh, both France and Germany have created these institutions. Is the Casse de Pau in France, uh, and there is a similar name in Germany, that uh, technically are not part of the government because the government owns less than 80%. And in Italy, there is an institution, it's called Casse de Pau, the Oppressity, which is identical to the Casse de Pau, the French Casse de Pau, uh, where the government owns 
only 39%. And so this institution could easily inject money in the banks and satisfy the requirement of uh, uh, the European rules, or at least... uh, uh, have this discussion later on. So first you do it, and then you sort of discuss with the rest of uh, of Europe. All right, uh, Luigi, what you're talking about, of course, the uh, Casa de Depositi is basically the Italian Sovereign Wealth Fund. Well, we had a great surveillance exclusive, and we actually spoke uh, to the guy that heads it, Mr. Costamagna, and he was very coy. I mean, the EU are not that stupid. If they're if the rule is broken, the rule is broken. But, but wait a second. When, when the Italian government sells uh, a company to Casa Depositi, is considered a privatization. In Germany and France, this has been considered outside of, p- of the perimeter of the state. So uh, I agree that the substance of the rule is broken, but uh, I don't know why the rule is different when it's applied by France or Germany or when well, it's applied by Italy. I, mean, I, I can just imagine the two of you over a wonderful bottle of wine in Friuli going nonstop in Italian. None of us in America, with my fractured language, I wouldn't get a word of it. Luigi, let me cut to the American chase. Is Frankfurt going to bail out Italy? No. So, but that, that's what not, not what I'm proposing. What I'm proposing is that the Italians, the Italian government, uh, bails out the Italian bondholders, not the Italian, uh, the, the bank holders, but the bondholders, because, and this is the important thing, is because uh, is the fault of the Italian regulators that this stuff was sold to regular investors. Both the Italian SEC, CONSUB, and the Bank of Italy closed one eye, and probably both, letting these things happen for years. Why? Because this was considered good for the stability of the banking sector. And so I think they, what I would do is first I will ask the resignation of both heads of uh, these two institutions. And then I would proceed with, uh, with this bailout because you cannot let uh, small investors pay for the mistakes done by regulators. Luigi, does Italy have the money to bail out their banks? Is it a rounding error? Is it, is it a lot of money? Or are they going to have to get a cash call from the rest of Europe? No, I think that uh, it's not too much money. We're talking about between 40 and 60 billion uh, euros, which, of course, uh, for you and I, at least for me, are a lot of money, but uh, for the Italian government, it's not. So I, if used properly in the form of an equity capital injection, I think this amount of money is sufficient to stop the problem. Unfortunately, as, as we were discussing earlier, European rules make it difficult. And, and actually, I'm sympathetic to the European rules. I think that European rules are are right. The, the problem is that it's been applied to a country where, for a long time, bonds and subordinating bonds were used to sell, they were sold to unsophisticated investors who would be devastated by the loss. Luigi, if the, bar, the banks aren't sorted in six months, will it bring down the government? I think so. If, if they are not able to cope with this banking crisis, the government will be uh, brought down. I think the level of uh, Rage that is among small investors is uh, out of this world. And we've seen with sort of, uh, uh, there are already two people who committed suicide, and uh, a lot of, a lot are very, very angry. And I think it's difficult for an American to understand because many of these banks used to be sort of uh, cooperative banks uh, where there are a lot of uh, friendship relationship, and so people feel betrayed by uh, their own friends, feel betrayed by their own local institutions, feel betrayed by everything. 
So I don't know what how they will react. You know, Tom, we have um, a, a great Bloomberg story, and I know in times of crisis we need to remain serious, but sometimes a little bit of a sense of humor uh, doesn't hurt. And they basically say it's now a familiar refrain, a European prime minister calling a referendum. His job could be on the line, and markets are getting worried. I mean, you need to find a solution for the banks. Luigi, is there a model in other countries that we should be looking at? I think that at the end of the day, as you know, I, I wasn't a big supporter, but at the end of the day, the TARP, uh, the last version of TARP, the one that was eventually implemented, worked decently well in the United States. So if the government has to intervene, I think has to intervene with some form of preferred, uh, so to make sure to wipe out the shareholders uh, if the bank is not solvent, but if the bank is solvent, the shareholders can buy back those preferreds and make it viable. So mm-hmm. I think that it's very important not to penalize Uh, banks that have have been doing well, Uh, but it's also important to intervene fast. And so you need to have a rule that fits uh, it all, and that's very, very tricky. Could this plunge us back to those darker days in 2008 where we don't actually know what the worst that could happen is? I think it's for Italy, that's worse than 2008. Uh, We have to realize that Italy is coming out of basically seven years trade of recession. So uh, it's, it's a miracle that there is any bank still standing at this point. And, uh, and this banking crisis is, is uh, running the risk of creating a Great Depression in Italy. We are already into a, a severe uh, recession and, and very long-lasting one. But uh, if the, the banking sector were to collapse, if there were a generalized bank run, we're talking about right. uh, uh, United States 1933. Luigi, very importantly, does this tell us about the elite structure of finance in Italy? Is it like U.S. where government people say, no, you're not going to make out? Or do we just assume the elites make out like a bandit in a restructuring Italy? That's a very good question. I think that uh, there are a lot of local banks that are intrinsically related to the political power and the local elite. So I think it would be very difficult to uh, make sure that these people are penalized. Uh, My proposal has been you go with an American version of TAR, but at the same time you have a national uh, uh, investigation where everybody who did something incorrectly paid severely for this. This is what uh, has been missing from the American top, and this is what will be crucial in Italy to do if you don't want to have a social revolt. Uh, Because as we know, there is the five-star movement, uh, which is uh, very angry with the current situation, so we'll seize any opportunity to uh, bail out, uh, to to criticize a bailout that uh, bail out also the bankers and not just uh, the banks. Luigi, if the financial system in Italy does go down, this would be much worse than a possible uh, Grexit, right? What we almost dealt with with Greece. Is it, can it actually take down the whole Eurozone with it? Yes, I think so. I think that uh, if you have uh, a, a bank run in Italy, I think at some point uh, the Italian government will have to do something. And it's not other question that this something is to sort of uh, get out of the euro. After all, the biggest uh, obstacle to get out of the euro is the transition and what happens to the banks. Once the banks are yeah. closed, uh, then the cost is, is limited and then you start looking only at an upside. You guys have been going at it here in Italian banks. Francine, I'm just looking at the restaurants in Fruilli. And, you know, we got to do a remote there. We can have Zingala San and one of my heroes, Axel Leonovud, who, who lives up uh, there as well. 
uh, was was iconic at UCLA years ago. Luigi, let's sum this up. Um, Luigi, what will you look for in the coming days from the Renzi government or from the Italian banks, particularly the larger banks? What will you look for? The first thing I will look at is to use plan to inject equity in banks, whether this is done by the government, this is done by the private sector, this is done by Europe. I think that's, uh, uh, those are technicalities. The important thing that we need to is a major capital injection in the banking sector. Without this, I think the entire banking sector is at risk. Luigi Zingales, thank you so much from Northeastern uh, Italy today for really, we greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.